worked at one time too many. We, I think so. <laughs> we'll forgive you for that. Okay. Well, I have a whole batch of handouts here, so let me start. There we go. This is a rough idea of the breakdown of the next several weeks. And this one will become explanatory in the course of our discussion today. So, we are, as you can tell, by what you're just now receiving, uh, going to start a study in Genesis. I make no promises. Uh, did I misspell it? Uh huh. Did I? I <laughs> Considering uh, how quickly I was trying to get all three of those typed up yesterday morning before I left the house, uh, it's just a misspelling. I'm sorry. I apologize. You can. <laughs> there may be some profound spiritual significance to it, which is haste makes waste. <laughs> so, but uh, <clears throat> but we did. Uh, uh, I did uh, give us some time to think about uh, which one of the two options uh, that I gave you we would uh, we would look at, and we considered the possibility of the Book of Romans and the possibility of Genesis. And we have uh, I have opted for Genesis, I should say. I did get input uh, both directions, uh, but I decided uh, at this juncture to do Genesis and, and uh, maybe Lord willing uh, when and if we ever finish the book of Genesis before the Lord returns, uh, we uh, may take a look at the book of Romans. <clears throat> uh, it has been, uh, I was thinking this week, it has been, I think, uh, about 35 years since I've taught through uh, the book of Genesis. So uh, it has been a while, <clears throat> but I'm looking forward to it. Uh, it's uh, the book of Genesis is just an amazing book. It's just a, to me, it's an astonishing book. Uh, I hope that's not overstating the overstating the case. Uh, as I was as I was preparing for it this week or the last few weeks and thinking about the various stories and the various accounts, uh, the various events that are detail this for us in the book of Genesis. Every one of them, as I thought about it, I thought, I can't wait to get to that. <laughs> it is just, to me, it's just a, it's a, it's just a neat book. It's, uh, in some ways, when you read it, it just looks like a series of stories. And as we see today, as we kind of look at some introductory thoughts before we look at verse 1 of chapter 1, uh, <clears throat> you'll, you'll see that, it, that they're more than just stories. <laughs> But they are just absolutely to me. They're just—it's uh, just full of, of richness and and profound significance. And so I hope that in the course of our looking at the book and studying the book, uh, that we'll be able to all of us will be able to taste some of that. Uh, as I said, uh, I'm, I'm not going to do an exhaustive study of Genesis. We're not going to look at every detail of every genealogy and 
whatever. We may not even look at every single story in detail. Uh, but it will be thorough because it's very important, I think, that we have a thorough understanding of the things that, uh, that Genesis talks about. <clears throat> I think about the various uh, stories that we... And when I, when I say story, don't get the wrong impression. On, <laughs> I'm not talking about fiction here. We're talking about history. We're talking about things that really happen to real people. Uh, like uh, James says, people with a nature like ours. And that's part of the glory of, uh, of, uh, of, the, of the book and of the stories. But there are, just, uh, there are stories of just remarkable splendor and majesty. I, I cannot think of anything more glorious than the, the things that we're going to be looking at over the next two or three weeks as we look at creation. Just absolutely <coughs> splendid, <laughs> glorious events <laughs> that unfold. And we get an insight into them with a with a simplicity and an eloquence that's just to me is just marvelous. Uh, and then and then of course uh, thinking about the splendor, the story of the creation of Adam and Eve, and and those first glorious days or weeks or months or years, however long it was, uh, in paradise. Uh, uh, those are just those are remarkable things to think about. They're there are also stories of, of just remarkable grace in judgment. When we see God coming into the garden after the fall, and, uh, and He is, because of Adam and Eve's sin, going to drive them from the garden. Yet even in the midst of, in the, midst of, the, of the judgment, there is grace. Uh, we think of the... We'll talk about this in detail. We think of the curse. What we talk about, the curse, the the need for man to work by the sweat of his brow. And, and there are times when I'm out there in, in the middle of August on the side of a house and, I'm, you know, and I can identify with the curse aspect of it. But it's also grace. Every day, every day that happens, you know, it doesn't happen to me very often anymore, thankfully, but those days I have when there is no work, uh, you know, then I appreciate uh, the grace that God extends to us. Uh, to work by the sweat of our brow. But more than that is that in the fall also we see that glorious promise of the seed that would crush the head of the serpent. So even in judgment there's grace in Genesis and we see that in those stories. We see it in the story of Noah and his family. There's judgment all around and yet there's grace extended to Noah. Uh, There are stories of just, to me, stunning, just absolutely stunning faith in God. Uh, take, for example, the story of Abraham. When God, however he did it, we have no idea, comes to Abraham in the, in the land of the Ur Chaldees and tell him, tells him to get up and leave his family and everything he knows and everything he's familiar with and go out to a place he has no clue where it is or what it is and Abraham just obeys God and gets up and follows because he just has this implicit faith in God. Or, the, or, or another story of Abraham, of course, when he's, when he's standing there on Mount Moriah with the knife in his hand, uh, acting in complete dependence upon God. Those are stories that just, uh, to me, just, I don't know about you, but they thrill me. Uh, and they are such an example. There are stories of, of just little stories of subtle significance. There's Methuselah, you know. Now, what do we know? Well, he's you know, the oldest guy who ever lived. Well, you know, there's some significance in that story. There's significance in his name. 
and I think there's significance, uh, and, and that's particularly interesting to me when, when we consider who Genesis lists as his father, the prophet Enoch. And there's significance in his name, and there's even significance in the number of years that Methuselah lived, 969 years. And uh, <clears throat> so there's, there's, uh, there's uh, the story of Judah, uh, when Judah goes into what he thinks is a prostitute to Tamar. And uh, just the, the hidden significance in the things that are happening there in the story uh, of, of Judah. There's, of course, there's stories of just incredible intrigue and deception. There's uh, Laban uh, deceiving Jacob. And then on the reciprocal end of it, there's Jacob deceiving uh, Laban. Uh, there's Tamar's deception of Judah. Uh, just all the way through the book of Genesis, we run into intrigue and deception and, and, and how God, even through all of that, accomplishes His purposes and works His ends. Uh, uh, I, like I said, as I think about these, even when I'm talking about them, I'm thinking I can't wait to get to these stories because they, they just, to me, they're so rich and so meaningful. There are stories of just incredibly deep pathos. You know, who can... Who can bear to read the story of Jacob hearing of the death of Joseph without weeping? As all of Jacob's folly and Jacob's foolishness and Jacob's sin comes down on his own head. And, uh, and <clears throat> there's also the, the incredible pathos we, we run into in that same area, in that same part of the book where where we hear Joseph crying out, screaming out from the bottom of the well, from the bottom of the pit, to his brothers for mercy, and they have no mercy. Just remarkable pathos. And then, of course, there's stories of just remarkable joy and, and hope. Uh, there's that story of, of Jacob wrestling with God until he secures that blessing that he's wanted all his life. And he's not going to let God go until he gets the blessing, and and God answers his prayer and gives him that blessing. There's the, and then there's that story there at the end of Genesis. And I don't know if I've ever read this story, but I have not read it in tears. The story of Joseph, as he is reconciled with his brothers, because he's willing to forgive them. <laughs> And he's willing to see God's hand in all that. I mean, this, this whole book is just full of things like this. <laughs> and these are the things that we're going to be looking at, uh, I'm sure, for the next couple of years or so. Because <laughs> we're not going to go through this book in a hurry. Uh, and and uh, by God's grace, hopefully, he will, he will show us meaning and significance in these things. I was thinking about... I think about how many of these stories are what we think of as Bible stories. <laughs> you know, they're the things you know. My, they're the things we learned when we were just little. You know, crumb crunchers in, uh, crunchers in uh, in uh, in Sunday school. You know, and we and we heard the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, and we heard the story of Noah's ark, and you know, and the two by two, and all that sort of thing. And and um, one of the things that's exciting to me as an adult is to go back and look at the Bible stories. <laughs> And, 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 and see them elevated from just the simple little childhood Bible stories, which were meaningful and enjoyable to us as children, but to see how much 
more depth and meaning and significance is hidden away in those stories that we never had any idea of when we were just little children. Uh, and I, and I, loved, I loved to read the stories in the Gospels. Uh, it's one of the reasons I enjoyed our study in Luke so much. To go through those stories that we were so familiar with because we've learned them and heard them since we were just little kids. And, and yet, when we read them now at our age, they can just be so full of just meaning and richness and significance and importance and challenge and encouragement to us as adults. So I'm, I'm looking forward to this book. But as I said, these stories are more than stories, and they're even more than history. They are history. These these things really happened, like we said, to real people with a nature like ours. But 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 they're more than just stories. This book is really a foundational book. Uh, I, I didn't really plan it this way when I set before you the option of studying Romans or Genesis. <laughs> But in one sense, I was setting before you the option of, of studying two books that are really foundational books. They are crucial books for us understanding our faith and understanding the gospel. We cannot understand the gospel and we cannot understand our faith apart from the book of Romans. And it's also true that we cannot understand our faith and we really can't understand the gospel apart from the book of Genesis. And it's easy for us to forget that because we're so familiar with so many of these stories and, and, uh, and we, uh, we read them and, and like I say, we, you know, we've been raised on them since we were little kids and so sometimes it's easy, I think, for us to forget how absolutely foundational all these things are. And we'll see this beginning uh, today as we take some time today and just look at verse 1 of the Bible, Genesis 1.1. And we're going to take uh, just a little bit of time today to look at that and then we'll explore it a little bit more next week in conjunction with the following verses. But, <clears throat> but, but beginning right there at the very outset in verse 1 are just absolutely foundational issues upon which everything else in our faith is constructed. And uh, when we look at the story of of how God was, uh, was guiding and preserving and directing a righteous seed or a righteous line beginning right at the outset and, and all the way through the book of Genesis for the purposes of countering the effects of Adam and Eve's sinful choice there in the garden and for the purposes of effecting our redemption and our salvation. And it starts from the very beginning. It starts right there in the garden. And we follow this story all the way through. And we'll talk about that more uh, in, in a minute. But, but Genesis really is foundational to us. And it's one of the reasons it's foundational to us is because it reveals to us uh, the God of Scriptures uh, in very very elementary, very foundational, and very important ways. It reveals to us His majesty. It reveals to us that He is a God who judges sin and forgives sinners. Uh, it reveals to us that He is a God who works relentlessly to overcome the destructive results of our sinful choices. And it also reveals to us that He is a God who looks forward to the consummation of all things in Himself. And it's really fascinating to discover that we haven't got three words into the first word of the Bible, but we are already looking to the end. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. 
the book itself, it's important for us to remember that the book of Genesis is really only a part of a larger whole. Uh, the book of Genesis is, uh, of course, obviously is part of the entirety of Scripture, but primarily the book of Genesis is part of the Pentateuch. It's part of the five books that the Jews referred to as the law. So oftentimes in the Gospels when you see the Jews and Jesus discussing things and they talk about uh, the, the, the Jews or the Pharisees may say something about the law or Jesus says something about the law, uh, oftentimes he's not referring, uh, they're not referring specifically to the covenant law that we talked about in our, that we just, in our study of Horeb that we just finished. Uh, they're not necessarily talking about the Ten Commandments, but they're talking about the whole five first books of the Scriptures, the Pentateuch. Okay? And they were, written, uh, they were written really as a whole. They were written to be taken together. Uh, and uh, the, really the pivotal, the pivotal point in the whole Pentateuch is the passage we just completed studying, that passage on the encounter of horror beginning in Genesis or Exodus 19 and up through about chapter 32. is really kind of the pivotal story or the pivotal event of, of the whole Pentateuch, of the whole five books uh, uh, of the uh, of the law, but uh, but Genesis comes at the very beginning of that, and and Genesis was written uh, was written by uh, as was the rest of the Pentateuch was written by Moses. Now, when we say that over the last 150 200 years or so, Genesis has been vigorously assailed by many skeptics and. And there are many people who have questioned uh, the mosaic authorship of Genesis and of the Pentateuch. But uh, in, in large measure, those criticisms fall uh, short. And we're not going to take time to look at all those. I'm just going to assert for you that Moses uh, wrote the Pentateuch and he wrote the book of Genesis. Now, that doesn't mean that, that Moses sat down and penned every word. It'd be better to see uh, he very clearly did pen uh, much, if not most of it. Uh, as we read, through, as we were looking through that passage in Exodus that we just finished, it's very clear. And Moses wrote the book of the law and 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 uh, other large portions of the Pentateuch. But but Moses was a historian, and 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 what and and he's and he's writing history, okay. And what a historian does is he not only writes. Uh, the things that are coming to his own mind as he's recalling events and that sort of thing. But, for example, uh, when we uh, began our study of Luke back two or three years ago, whenever it was, we studied Luke and we discovered that Luke as a historian is not, is not just writing what he himself individually or independently knows in and of himself. But as he says at the beginning of the gospel, he says that he had investigated all these things thoroughly and he had interviewed eyewitnesses. And so he had other sources. And so what we discover from the writers, the writers of biblical history, for example, the gospels and especially Luke, it's very obvious with Luke, uh, but also with the other gospel writers, that, that as historians, they're approaching their subject as researchers <laughs> and they're going back and they're finding other sources. They're finding, uh, for example, Luke was interviewing uh, eyewitness accounts of uh, people who were actually there. So it's not just that, that he was just writing these things down himself, but he was verifying them. We assume also that Luke was also using some written sources that were written before the Gospel of Luke that he referred to. That doesn't in any way uh, cast any shadow on the inspiration 
uh, of the Gospel of Luke or of any uh, of the historical books of the Bible. Uh, God is able to, uh, to superintend the writing, as we've talked about many times before, in such a way to, to guard its accuracy and to, and to uh, fill it with a spiritual message that he intends it to be filled with. So when we talk about Moses writing the history we believe that, that it was in large measure uh, written by Moses, that it was edited and compiled in large measure by Moses, and that as he did so, he was, as, as all the rest of Scripture was, he was superintended, he was guided by the Holy Spirit uh, in the writing of that so as to guard the truthfulness, the accuracy, uh, and, and, and even to develop the themes and the messages that are, that are, in, that are in the book. <clears throat> so... So keep that in mind as you're as you're reading uh, as you're reading Moses. Obviously, Moses was not an eyewitness account to what we're going to be looking at over the next couple weeks. Okay, he just wasn't there. So obviously, he got his source from somewhere else. He got his information from somewhere else. <clears throat> okay. Now, uh, there are some things that I like to think about uh, about uh, the nature of the book, uh, just the way it's written and its style and that sort of thing. Um, the, the more you study Genesis as a book and the way it's written, uh, the more impressed I am by this guy Moses. Uh, it's just an incredibly intelligent individual who has written uh, this material that we're going to be studying. And, uh, and not only was he intelligent, but he was an incredibly gifted, artistic person. Uh, you know, I... I appreciate art in, in all levels. I appreciate it in music and in drawing and things. But given the kind, the kind of person I am and my personality, one of the areas where I appreciate art the most is those who, have, those who are skilled in the art of words. And Moses is uh, just remarkably skilled. And I hope as we're going through some of these stories, <coughs> we can bring some of these things out. Uh, just uh, uh, Jim happened to mention a couple of weeks ago just this uh, literary technique called a chiasm that we talked about just briefly that he was reminding us. Of. I had forgotten all about chiasms until you brought it up, but <clears throat> but it's a it's a literary technique. It's a it's a it's a, we won't go back into it, but it's a literary technique that's used to communicate ideas. Uh, and uh, and Genesis is full of just all kinds of interesting literary techniques. And, and fascinating ones, very complex ones. So that Moses in writing not only manages to, to record for us history, but he records for us history with a, what we might call an ideology or a theology involved. Okay? So his objective is not just to communicate history, but his objective is to communicate history with a theology, with a reason, with a message. Okay? But not only does he want to communicate history and ideology, if you will, or theology, but he wants to do it in, a, in an aesthetically beautiful way. And fortunately, I don't know of many of us in here who know Hebrew or are able to read Hebrew, but, but uh, hopefully we'll be able to draw some of these things out as we go through some of these stories uh, of just fascinating uh, ways uh, that Moses has written these stories so that they are not simply history and they're not simply spiritual truth, but they're just beautiful. They're just beautiful. And some of it is patently obvious to us. I mean, I don't know who can read Genesis 1-1 and not just sit back and go, that's awesome. That is just written. I mean, how could you write it better? In the beginning, 
God created the heavens and the earth. Ten words that are so simple and yet so eloquent and yet so profoundly significant. Okay, And that's just one tiny illustration. Uh, one of the things that the writer of Genesis does, sometimes I'll call him a writer of Genesis, understand I'm talking about Moses. One of the things that he does is he, uh, is he divides the book up into uh, <clears throat> what we call uh, Toledoth or Toledot. Okay? I'm not exactly sure uh, how you prefer to pronounce that. Okay? But it is a Hebrew word that is translated variously in the book of Genesis as the accounts or the generations. Okay? And uh, for example, in uh, chapter 2, in verse 4, it says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. That word account there is this word toledot or toledot. Okay? Uh, if you go over to Genesis chapter 5, in verse 1, it says, This is the book of the generations of Adam in the day when God created man, etc. Okay? That word there, generations, is the same word, toledot. Okay? Hence this little handout that I gave you here, the generations or the accounts of Genesis. Okay? And if you look down through that, you'll realize that the writer of Genesis has divided the book up into basically, uh, and it kind of depends on, on, on uh, how you break it down. You can break it down a couple different ways, but I think the predominant way that, that, that I've seen and it makes sense to me is, is this breakdown here, which is 11 sections of the book of Genesis. Okay? The first one, of course, being the prologue, which we're going to look at over the next two or three weeks, Genesis 1, 1 through uh, Genesis 2, verse 3. Uh, and then it begins with these Toledot or Toledoth, or generations, or accounts, okay? And then you have the first one, you have the account of, or the generations of the heavens and the earth, okay? And then after that, you have the generations of Adam and Noah, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, okay? And at the, and at the end of each one of these Toledoth, there's a transition that transitions you from the, from the previous Toledoth into the next Toledoth, okay? Now, uh, there is some variation because of the, because of the content of the story. Uh, uh, Moses had to make some variations. For example, <clears throat> when he calls the first the generations of the heavens and the earth, that's obviously the first one. That's not that's the only one that's not named after an individual. Okay, and the reason for that is the Toledot, or these uh, generations or these accounts, are really not about the person they're named after. For example. <coughs> The, uh, take, for example, the, the Toledot or the generations of Shem listed down there about halfway. It's really not about Shem. It's about his descendants. Okay? Shem is actually included in, in the previous one, the generations of Noah's sons okay? uh, and the generations of Noah. But the generations of Shem or the account of Shem is not really an account of Shem's life. It's, a, it's an account of the lives and the events that followed Shem in his descendants, okay? Well, when you understand that, uh, as you go back then, you get back to Adam and you wonder, well, then who, you know, who is Adam a descendant of? <laughs> you know? So obviously Moses couldn't write uh, there uh, the generations of God or <laughs> something like that, okay? So the way Moses identifies it there in, in chapter 2, verse 3, is he, or verse 4, is he calls it the generations of the heavens and earth. That's really a discussion of Adam and Adam's immediate descendants, okay? Well, 
this will become helpful for us as we go through the book uh, to kind of understand some of the things uh, that that Moses is trying to communicate and some of the directions that he's trying to move uh, as as he tells his story. Uh, and for example, one way that this helps us to understand things is I don't know if you've ever in reading through the first two or three chapters of Genesis, notice that there are two accounts of creation, right? You read through Genesis uh, 1 and you get this wonderful, beautiful, majestic account of creation and it kind of goes over into the beginning of chapter 2. And then you get to verse 4 of chapter 2 and you just kind of do a reset, you know, and you're back, you know. And, but it seems like it's a different story, okay? Well, there's a reason for that. The first chapter and the first few verses of chapter 2 are the prologue to the book of Genesis. Beginning in chapter 2, verse 4, we have the first of the accounts, the first of the generations of the ten generations that he is going to uh, articulate and express throughout the book of Genesis. Okay? So there's actually a reason. It's not that there are two discrepant accounts of creation. There are two distinct accounts of creation written from two different perspectives for two entirely different purposes. Genesis 1 was written for a different purpose than Genesis 2 was written. Genesis 1 was written as the prologue. It's the introduction. Okay, uh, and, and then once the introduction is made, then Moses launches in to, uh, into his basic theme or the basic direction that he intends to go and he has chosen to, to communicate that theme and communicate that message uh, through this outline of these Toledoth or these generations or accounts. Okay, So keep that in mind as we're going through Genesis and you can keep that around and we'll, uh, we'll uh, refer to it from time to time as we're going through the book. <clears throat> I've already talked a little bit about, about the, uh, just the beauty of Genesis uh, it's one of the fascinating things about me that God, when He creates something, uh, He's not like some of us who just tries to make it as utilitarian as He possibly can, but He tries to make it beautiful. <clears throat> and I was thinking about that this morning as I was thinking, I'm glad that when God created woman, He chose to make her beautiful. I'm glad He just didn't make her a square block. <laughs> you know, But God not only saw the need that, that we as men had for a companion, for someone who was fit or suitable for us, but he made her beautiful. And God does that all the way through creation. You know, I was walking out at the lake yesterday and as I you know, always do or usually do when I'm preparing a lesson and, and, uh, and uh, it's kind of hard to find any room out there where I could be alone <laughs> on Memorial Day weekend, but I managed. <clears throat> but I, I'm just walking around and I'm thinking about creation, okay, thinking about Genesis 1-1. And I'm just looking at these trees and, the, you know, of course, with all the rain, everything is so green. God's just, God really is about the aesthetics. He really is about the beauty. And He has done that with the book of Genesis. He has made it a beautiful book. And, and in fact, all the way through scriptures, you know, over and over again, there are passages in Scripture which are not only, to me, profound because of what they say, but they're profound because of the way they say it. And Genesis uh, is full of places like that. 
So we'll be we'll be looking and we'll be thinking about some of those things. He uses some literary. He uses a number of literary techniques. Uh, one of them is the is the outline or the breakdown that I just gave you. He uses uh, he uses what we call poetics, and by that we don't necessarily mean poetry, although there is some poetry uh, in Genesis. But but he uses uh, his 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 desire there, as I as I mentioned, is not is to make. And the use of poetics in Genesis is not only to make it a historical book and an ideological book, but to make it a beautiful book. He uses things like key words. And an example of key words is the word uh, in the story of, of, uh, of Isaac. Uh, he uses the word game. And by that, we don't mean monopoly or, <laughs> or uh, uh, a game like that, but we mean a game like uh, how would go out and shoot out in his backyard. <laughs> Uh, but uh, talking about how dogs. Uh, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he, he sometimes he says. Uh, so there, uh, so he uses the word game, and it comes up repeatedly in that story of Isaac. And there's a reason for that. The writer of Genesis is trying to tell us something about Isaac, and he's foreshadowing Isaac's greatest mistake, or one of his greatest mistakes. And it's because of his inordinate appetite for something which is otherwise good. His just love for a good steak actually ultimately leads to a blindness that causes him to lose one of his sons. And that's foreshadowed for us and communicated to us by the repeated word, the repeated use of the word uh, game in that story. Uh, as I mentioned, there's foreshadowing. There are just fascinating patterns, and I hope we can develop some of these as we go through the book. Just, uh, for example, some of these Toledots are just written in, in just uh, fascinating patterns. Some of them are written in what's called a concentric pattern. And, and like I said, I, I, I don't have time to explain it to you today, but I hope we'll have time to look at it as we go through some of these Toledots to look at this concentric pattern. It's kind of like a chiasm, kind of like what we were talking about. It's much more complex and much more developed because it's involving entire uh, stories and covering sometimes uh, numerous individuals over many years. And yet it's written in a fashion that's, uh, <clears throat> that I assume is not only for the purposes of beauty, but also for the purposes of making it easier to learn and remember uh, because, of course, not everybody could read. Well, Rick, that, not only that, I was just realizing when you were describing that and earlier, but that really reflects God's character. It's not just the truth. It's not just the way that we can understand it, but it rises it to an artistic level yeah. that, just, that just describes God. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Well, so the question is, why the book of Genesis? What is, its, what, is, what is Moses trying to communicate? Remember, it's, it's part of the Pentateuch. It doesn't, it doesn't just stand by itself. We oftentimes kind of make it stand by itself, but it doesn't really stand by itself. It's part of the Pentateuch. And, and, and the question is, what is Moses after? What is he trying to communicate? What are the, what are the primary themes or threads that run through the book of Genesis? And... And, and one of the primary themes that is developed in the book of Genesis is a primary theme of Scripture. And we see it particularly come to the surface again when we get to the Gospels. is the theme of the kingdom of God. 
Okay, and this is a this is a dominant theme throughout all of Scripture. Uh, is this idea of of God's kingdom? Okay, and a kingdom typically consists of four things. A kingdom consists of a people. It consists of a land. It consists of a ruler, and it consists of rules. Okay, and and we begin to pick up some of those elements of a kingdom very early in the book of Genesis. Okay, and and two of the two of those elements are particularly emphasized through the book of Genesis, and then uh, the idea of the ruler and the rule begins to become developed much more uh, much more extensively in the book of Exodus, and as you move on later into the Pentateuch, but. But the two things that are that are just kind of dominant ideas that carried out throughout the book of Genesis is the idea of the of the people of the kingdom and the land. Okay, and those are two things that are those two threads or two ideas, two themes that are just going to repeatedly come to the surface as we go through the book of Genesis. And that's one of the reasons why the book of Genesis is so fascinating because so much of it is about people and about land. Okay, and. Uh, and as we study those stories, uh, that will become uh, obvious. And that theme begins in the garden. The garden is the beginning of the kingdom of God. Okay? It's God's rule over His people in paradise without sin, without any blemish. Okay? It is the kingdom of God. Okay? And then that kingdom, of course, is corrupted by, by what we call the fall or by Adam and Eve's sin. And, uh, and immediately, immediately, God begins to recover paradise. To recover paradise lost. And the entire rest of the Bible is about God's relentless action to recover paradise lost. And it's actually foreshadowed for us, as I said, in the third word of the book. Okay? As we'll see in, in just a minute if I get that far. <laughs> okay? Another theme that, that's tied to this, uh, tied to this idea of the people and that comes out, uh, the people of the kingdom and that comes out uh, throughout the book is uh, this idea of two generations or two seed or two lines of people. Okay? Developed it right off the beginning. Right at the beginning, we have the two lines or the two seeds. Okay, you have the righteous line, and you have the unrighteous line. Now, I need to be careful because because we're going to be studying a lot about the righteous line, and you're going to find out if you don't already know that the righteous line oftentimes is not very righteous. Okay, when we study when we study some things about Noah, we study some things about Jacob. We study some things about Isaac, you know. Uh, we're going to find, and then when we get to the to the sons of Jacob, you know, there's some pretty ugly, wicked stuff that goes on. Okay, so I don't want you to be mistaken when I'm talking about the righteous line that I'm talking about people that are just, you know, uh, you know, uh, goody two shoes, wonderful saints, you know, and just never stumble or whatever. But what is clear is that throughout Scripture, beginning in the book of Genesis and beginning with Adam and Eve and on down, there are two lines. And God makes that picture very clear and He makes it very distinct. And it becomes more distinct as you move later than on into the book of Exodus and on into the Pentateuch, the idea of the righteous seed. Okay? 
And it begins with Adam and Eve, and they, of course, have two sons. They have Cain and they have Abel. And which one is the righteous seed there? Abel. And then the unrighteous is Cain, right? Okay. What happens to the righteous seed? Pardon? He's murdered. Okay. It's the end of the righteous seed. Well, so much for that program. No, God gives him another son who is whom? Seth, yeah. Okay, and that's the, that's the reinstitution of the righteous seed. And then we follow that righteous line from Seth all the way through the book of Genesis, Genesis as the main highway that we travel down through in the book of Genesis. Now, uh, think of it this way. The interesting thing that he does, if you look at your list of the generations there, you'll notice that, there, that it lists a number of the righteous generations, Noah, Adam, uh, Shem, uh, uh, Isaac, uh, Jacob, etc. Okay, but notice also there's some of the unrighteous generations there. There's uh, <clears throat> there's Terah is listed there. Uh, actually, Terah is part of the righteous line. I should I should uh, rephrase that. But Ishmael is listed in there. Esau is listed in there. Okay, and and the point I'm trying to make is that as as Moses is moving through his story, he's following this righteous line and will follow this righteous line all the way through the book of Genesis. But in each one of these generations that he comes to, each one of these Toledots that he comes to, there is in each Toledot, there is a discussion of the righteous line going through this Toledot, but there's also discussion of the unrighteous line, the unrighteous seed. Okay, And, and what you'll notice that he does, I think he does this every time, I believe he does this every time, that that he, when he comes to a fork in the road, okay, where you have a father who begets sons, and one of those sons is one of the righteous line, and the other son or other sons are, are ones of the unrighteous line. It's interesting what the writer of, of Genesis does, because he, what he does is he's going down the road and, and this main line, so to speak, and he comes to a comes to a juncture, and there's a junction over here, and it's the unrighteous line. So he stops and he looks down that unrighteous line, but he just looks a generation or two. And then he comes back to the main story and he goes on to the next son and he's also an unrighteous line. So he looks down that line and he mentions about it for a generation or two, but he comes back. And then always last, but always the trail he stays on, the road he stays on is the righteous line. And then he goes on and he investigates the righteous line. And we'll see that pattern all the way through the book of Genesis. He'll stop, he'll look down these other lines and he'll go, well, okay, there was Esau and he didn't, you know, and there was, you know, and there was there was uh, Ham and, you know, and there was uh, Japheth and, you know, and, and tells us a little, but then he focuses on the righteous line, okay? And that is a theme that runs all the way through the book of Genesis. Moses is doing that for a reason. He wants the children of Israel to understand where they stand in relationship to God. There's no accident that they are where they are. Well, <clears throat> so that's just some of the things we're going to think about, some of the things we're going to explore as we think through this book. And... and uh, and, and I hope that, that you are anticipating, at least to some degree, as much as I am, uh, looking at this book. Like I said, as I think about these stories and these things that we talk about, I just, I love them all. <laughs> I really love them all. And, and I'm really looking forward to it. But let's go back now to Genesis chapter 1. And, 
And just think in, in the time we have left about verse 1, and, and of course this is an, a, a verse that's just really uh, infinite in its scope, so we won't be able to do it complete justice. But I want to think about it some today, and, and doubtless next week we'll come about and think about it some more as we go on and look uh, deeper into the story, the, the first part of the story of creation. But, but I should say this, that particularly as we address Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, the story of creation, that my objective is to discover what the Scriptures say. Okay? My objective in the class here is not to reconcile science and the Bible. To me, I, I don't know necessarily that they need to be reconciled, but that's not my job. I, 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 I think there's a great place for apologetics, an important place for apologetics, and I think there's a tremendous degree of merit and worth in studying uh, the whole creation uh, evolution debate and, and the pros and cons and answering the difficult questions that are brought forth in that. But if we did that, we'd never get the book of Genesis studied. <laughs> so that's not my objective here. I, uh, and and that, like I say, that's not at all to disparage that particular uh, line of, of study and exploration. And it's tremendously important. Uh, and, and I encourage you to do it if you feel so led to do it. But that's not my point. My objective. My objective is to figure out what does Genesis say? What does God say? Okay. And once I know what God says, uh, then I can decide do I believe Him or not? Okay. <laughs> and and uh, if science comes along and says, well, you know, God was wrong, well, then I'm going to have to make a choice at that point whether I think science is right or God is right. Okay. <clears throat> but uh, I, it's my intention and my hope. Uh, to always side on God's side and let science fall wherever it may. Okay, so my my desire here is to is to is to understand uh, simply what God is saying. Okay, and and I don't want to imply by that, incidentally, that that I think that the two are that science and 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 Genesis one and two are irreconcilable. I think they may be irreconcilable from certain frames of reference. <laughs> From which naturalists approach Genesis, but I think that uh, I think ultimately uh, science, if it will be at least halfway honest, will ultimately uh, validate Scripture as it has in many points. And we'll talk a little bit about some areas in which science has already done that. Uh, at least we'll probably bring those things up and talk about them as we go through this story. <clears throat> there are. Three primary points in this in these first ten verses, ten words of Genesis uh, and of the Scripture uh, that I see. One is the concept of the beginning. The second is the concept of God, and the third <coughs> is the concept of creation. Okay, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, when Genesis one one says in the beginning, it means literally that. In the beginning. In other words, there is nothing which comes before this. And there is nothing which exists before this. When I say nothing, I'm speaking of the cosmos or the material world or anything associated with the material cosmos. Okay? Energy, light, space, time, 
all of those things come into being at this point. Okay. Now there was a point in time in which, at which uh, many people didn't believe that, and many scientists didn't believe that, and they argued for the eternal existence of the cosmos that it has always been here, and so you know we don't need to explain where it came from because it's always been here. Okay. But beginning sometime in, I think, in the last century, I don't know the exact dates, but uh, sometime between 1900, 1920, 25 or so, uh, they began to discover some troubling new evidence. <laughs> and that evidence led scientists ultimately to, to understand profoundly that the cosmos, the entire universe, including space and time, had a beginning. Now, I know that short, that short circuits my mind. I'm sure for some of you who aren't scientists, it may short circuit your mind too. <laughs> the idea that time doesn't always exist. But it didn't. We talked about that when we were back, in, uh, when we were back doing our study in Second Peter a few months ago and we were talking about uh, with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. And we were talking about God being outside of time was a term I chose to use. And the reason I use that term is because it's very clear that God created time. And if God created time, He's apart from time. He is outside of time. Now, that doesn't mean He can't enter time. God is apart from and outside of space, but He obviously enters space in the incarnation. Okay? So the fact that God enters space, or, or the fact that God enters time or operates within the confines of time does not mean that God is not independent of time. Okay? As God is independent of all of His creation. Because it becomes obvious to any honest observer that at some point you can always push back, you can always explain what exists by some prior cause to it. But ultimately, eventually, if you're honest with yourself, you have to acknowledge at some point the uncaused cause. Genesis tells us who that uncaused cause is. Okay. That uncaused cause is God. And in the beginning... God acted, okay? Now, the interesting thing about this word beginning here, uh, the, the uh, Hebrew word here for beginning, actually is interesting. It means it, it, it has the idea of a, uh, of a starting point. And the word itself implies the Hebrew word we're talking about here, not the English word. The Hebrew word here always implies an end. And so it's fascinating to me that here we are in Genesis 1, verse 1, third verse. And there's already a foreshadowing of Revelation. There's already a foreshadowing of the consummation of all things in himself. And so from the very outset, in the word that, that Moses chooses to write here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the word he chooses to use here to describe the very beginning of all the, all the material universe and finite spiritual beings, angels, etc., 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 that all that, that in that very first moment of space and time and, and all that exists apart from God, 
God has in mind the consummation of it all in Himself. And He wants, it's clear then, that Moses wants the children of Israel, as they pick up the Pentateuch and read it, and they start here in Genesis chapter 1, and they're trying to understand where do we fit into this, you know, what is our significance, and where do we fit into this whole cosmos thing that Moses wants them to understand that they are only part of a greater whole. And that they and that this is the beginning point here. And it will ultimately move forward and God will then uh, in this whole thing with the righteous line, He will choose Israel and He will choose to work through Israel to display His glory to the nations and all that sort of thing. But that ultimately God is moving towards an objective. God is moving towards an end. God has a purpose in all of this. And He is moving relentlessly in that direction. Okay. Well, and the next exciting thing about this verse is it tells us who did this. Elohim. The Hebrew word is repeated over and over and over again in the Old Testament. Uh, to over 2,000 times referring to the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Bible. Okay? There are a few times when it's used to refer to angels. Uh, some, occasionally it's used to refer to powerful or great men. But predominantly throughout Scripture, this word Elohim, which is in its plural form, is used to refer to the God of Scripture, the God of the Bible, the covenant God of Israel. In fact, when we get to chapter 2, he's very specific. He calls him Yahweh Elohim, the covenant God of Israel. So even long before we have the covenant of Genesis 9, of Genesis chapter 20, uh, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 20, long before we actually have the covenant, long before we even have a nation of Israel, Moses is telling us that Israel, your God, Yahweh, is the God who acted in the beginning and created the heavens and the earth. He's no petty little provincial God. There's this really kind of funny story in 1 Kings when uh, uh, the nation of Israel, this is after the divided, the kingdom is divided, and so this would be the northern kingdom. And the northern kingdom is, is going to war, I, I think as I recall, it's against the Syrians. Okay. Uh, it's, it's, uh, I, it, wasn't, no, it wasn't the Syrians. Uh, I can't remember now who it was. You have to look it up. First Kings chapter 20. Okay. And beginning about 20 verses, well, it starts earlier in the chapter, but the main point of the story I'm referring to starts in about verse 23. And the enemies of the northern kingdom go to battle and they lose. And so the, the enemies of the, the Israel, whoever they were there, uh, the enemies of the northern kingdom then, they go, well, the reason we lost is because we were fighting in the mountains and, and their God is the God of the mountains. So what we need to do is we need to go out and fight on the plains because <laughs> that's where our gods are really powerful. Okay. So they lay out this strategy and a few months later they go out and they fight on the plains and they get creamed again. Why? Because Elohim is not a god of the mountains nor is he a god of the plains. He is the 
great God who is apart from and above and beyond all of the creation. And that is the profound thing that that Moses is setting before the children of Israel as he's beginning this whole story that unfolds throughout the entire Pentateuch is this God of yours is not just your God. And He's not just a God of the mountains and He's not just a God of the plains. He's not a Baal. He's not an Ashtaroth. He's not a God of Egypt. He's not Zeus. He's not one of the gods of the Romans or the Greeks. This is the one, only, true, living, eternal, always existent God who has always existed from eternity past and will always exist into eternity future. This is the God, Moses says, we're talking about here. And he unfolds for us this magnificent picture of this magnificent God who just, who just blows all the other gods of the world out of the water. There's just nothing like this God. And in fact, all these other gods we discover then eventually are false gods. They're just the... They're just the construction of men's hands and men's imaginations. But this God, He is beyond it all. He existed before space and He existed before time. He existed before the cosmos. And He is the one who, as we'll see next week, with a simple word, brings it all into existence by the word of His power. Well, and then it says that He created the heavens and the earth. Now, the, the word there that's used, the way it's used in this particular passage, and it's interesting, this particular word, the Hebrew word that's used here, is only used in reference to God. It's never used in reference to anybody else. Okay. And there are different words, and there's even different words in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 for the idea of making things. Okay. And he uses these other words also in Genesis 1 and 2, and we'll probably take time to look at some of that as we go through it. But this particular word carries with it the idea of making out of nothing. It's the idea, theologians call it ex nihilo, or ex nihilo, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Ex meaning out of, nihilo meaning nothing. Okay, This is pretty exciting to me. I've made a lot of things in my life. I've never made anything ex nihilo. And neither have you. But this God independent and apart from the entire material cosmos, brought into existence this cosmos out of nothing. Now, is that cool or what? Is our God great or what? There is nothing there but God. And God, in His purposes and for His reasons, some of which we know, most of which we'll probably be learning about throughout eternity, but for whatever purposes, He chooses to bring this entire cosmos into existence. And He does so. Now, when we think about this idea of, of ex nihilo, God creating out of nothing, uh, 
we have to understand that it refutes three very common misconceptions about our world and our universe. It refutes the idea that the cosmos has always existed. Okay? Science, finally, as I said, in the last hundred years or so, is coming around to that realization. You know, the whole theory of rel specific relativity, uh, Einstein's theory, uh, the discovery that the uh, the planets are moving, all the planets and stars and uh, particular items in the universe are moving away from each other at a certain rate of speed. Uh, all of those things combine together to make scientists realize, ooh, it hasn't always been here. And so, hence, they talk about the Big Bang. Now, I don't think the Big Bang is an explanation of creation. It has That theory in itself has flaws when you come and compare it against the book of Genesis. But it does show the movement of science towards the realization that this world has not always existed. Uh, this cosmos has not always existed. <clears throat> Second, it refutes the idea that this uh, cosmos was made from some other pre-existing material or energy or some, something. There was something that existed. Okay, That's one of the problems with the Big Bang Theory is that, is that at some point they get down to this little seed and they're trying to figure out what was that seed. Well, there wasn't a seed. Okay, There was not a seed. Now, there may have eventually sometime been a seed, but in the beginning there was no seed, there was no energy, there was no time, there was no space, there was nothing. And God created ex nihilo. The third thing is it refutes the idea that the creation, the cosmos, emanates from some absolute or emanates somehow from God. Okay? It refutes that idea. Okay. Well, we're out of time. Next week we're going to go on. We'll pick up uh, with verse 2. We will look at some more at verse 1 and pick up at verse 2 and go through the first uh, half or so of creation week. So. Number three. Oh, uh, my third point on... Uh